There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombacher. Joining me, as always, is Centauri Miner. Hello, folks. Helping us move from awareness to action this week is Alex Walsh, the CEO of the Walsh Corporation, an organization assisting companies on all forms of corporate finance decisions. Welcome, Alex. Thank you for having me, guys. Yeah, excited to be talking with you today. I know that uh, both you and Centauri are going to be presenting at the uh, the upcoming Arizona Good Business Summit, and uh, so I'm excited to, to talk about that with you guys, and I know that you're also both members of Gen Next, so lots of, uh, lots of crossover on today's call. Did you also talk about the fact that we're both DePaul alums? Oh gosh, I totally forgot about that. And, and Andrew also. What are the odds, alums. man? <laughs> How uh, you y- you guys are a couple years apart. Uh, we're we're uh, we're we're people still talking about Centauri when you were there, Alex. I was after <laughs> Alex. <laughs> oh, it okay. was it was the other way around. But I'm I'm sure I left my my mark, and, and Centauri took the baton and ran with it. Nice, I appreciate that. So, Alex, tell us about, uh, well, just give us some background on you, how, uh, where, where, where you grew up, your, your path to DePaul, and then your path to, uh, to, uh, to the work you're doing with the Walsh Corporation. Yeah, so I'll, uh, I'll, I'll do my best Reader's Digest version, uh, but I am a Tempe native. Um, I went, my parents moved here from England in 1970. Seven, I think, somewhere in there. Uh, I was born in 1980. Uh, my parents still live in the house, same house I was born in, uh, and I live about a mile away from them. Uh, went uh, down the street to Brophy College Preparatory uh, for high school, which was, you know, partly it was a good school. I played golf uh, growing up, but my dad had also attended a Jesuit uh, high school, which ended up being kind of the a lot of the decision around that. Um, I ended up at DePaul uh, where I played golf and, and I kind of, you know, I, I, I am a, um, I'm a decent golfer, but I was never uh, on, on track to try and become a professional golfer. So I really wanted to play golf in college um, and I really wanted to get a good education and DePaul afforded both of those uh, outlets for me. And it was interesting to, spend four years as kind of a Phoenix native. Uh, we are in a little bit of a bubble out here. Um, and it was great to kind of spend time in the Midwest and um, see different parts of Ohio and Indiana and, and Illinois and even up into Wisconsin uh, on my travels. And I think it just gave me kind of an interesting um, outlet for just seeing how different folks in different parts of the country kind of function and operate. Um, came straight back here after school and I got into the financial services industry um, on what I consider to be the retail side uh, of working with small business owners. So I was helping them with their health insurance plans and retirement programs and planning for retirement and um, 
providing different you know forms of benefits uh, to their employees and, and thinking about their businesses. And I did that for about five years. Um, but for me, the the business owners and what made them tick and how they made money was far more interesting to me than the design of one retirement plan versus another or saving them some money on their uh, health insurance program or helping them decide what you know mutual fund they should be putting money away into. Uh, and in 2007, I had the opportunity to um, go and, and actually work for a couple of my clients um, as a consultant. And at that time, um, my broker dealer basically was like, well, you can't manage their money inside of their 401k and have them pay you to, as a consultant to perform, you know, business services. Um, so I decided to just get out of that day job and move more into the consulting realm. Uh, and that was, January, February, 2008. So it's kind of pre Bear Stearns and pre Lehman. Um, and what, what, so it's kind of an interesting time to go into businesses as a consultant and in, in whatever function they needed me to perform. Right. Um, and after, you know, a couple of years, it was structurally, it was, it was fantastic for me because businesses weren't interested in hiring people full-time. In fact, they were having to trim people and move people around. So as a part-time consultant, I was just getting thrown a lot of different opportunities and a lot of problem-solving metrics and advising uh, a handful of these business owners. Uh, and then by, call it the middle of 2009, a lot of the people in my network and a lot of the clients that I was working for were saying, okay, well, we've survived the storm. Now, what do we do? Because we've got bank loans that are due on our real estate that are underwater. We've got competitors that are going out of business that we could um, acquire. We could grow now that the economy has a decent foundation, but we don't know um, where to go to get that capital. Because if you can imagine, you know, 10 years ago where we were at in the economy, um, none of the banks were returning anybody's call. Because uh, they were still trying to figure out, you know, what was up from down um, through the, you know, the quote-unquote Great Recession. Um, so I had to educate myself very quickly on where to help these folks find alternative sources of capital uh, and how they needed to think about that. And I think that that probably gives me. Uh, I don't want to say like a leg up on a lot of the folks that do what I do in corporate financing or, or M&A advisory, but it definitely helps me in relating to the business community uh, and my clients because growing up in Phoenix, Arizona, um, lots of folks, parents were engineers. You know, my parents happened to be, te my dad is a teacher and my mom worked for a theater company. Um, so I wasn't getting, I wasn't coming home having a lot of like business discussions, right? Um, but there's a lot of folks that were engineers or in real estate in, in some capacity or another because it's a very real estate driven economy and Fortune 100 driven economy um, for the prior, say, 20 or 30 years. So I'm having to educate myself on 
what's the difference between a family office investor and a private equity investor? What's the difference between private equity and venture capital? What are the different structures that investors will come into a transaction uh, and view and, and how do they evaluate and, and categorize, categorize risk of investing in a small business? So when I meet business owners that, that need help and they, they need an, an education about where, what, what the playing field is for all forms of different capital, you know, I can be very sympathetic to kind of where they're at because you just, you know, there aren't investment banks on every street corner here in Phoenix, Arizona. And even as, as large as our population or economy is, you know, the, you know, if there's a big deal happening in Phoenix, more than likely the investment bankers are coming in from LA. They're not based here. Right. Um, so that's, that's my background. Over the last 10 years, I've consulted for dozens and dozens of local companies. Either with just helping them understand their options or helping them raise capital or sell their businesses. Um, and by way of, you know, a, a relatively eclectic network, I've worked on transactions all the way from Nineveh, Canada to uh, you know, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. So lots of lots of different moving parts. Alex, um, thank you for sharing that with us. What I, recently, there was a lot of uh, rhetoric and conversations around Phoenix being the, a good place to start a new business. As a person that's in the forefront of this, uh, tell us about how you feel about Phoenix being kind of the, the startup place, or at least one of the top 10 startup places in the country. Yeah, so I think, I think you need to think about it in two contexts. And one is more of your, your tech entrepreneur startup. And the other is someone who's got an operating business that they want to run. But I think that both sides are benefiting from the same moving parts, which is this is a, a very uh, cost-effective place to live and to raise a family. Um, we've got a, a substantial and diverse uh, population that you can draw from. Um, and what you've seen, you know, I'll give two little anecdotes, and I, and I, but I think it's all driving from this is a much more inexpensive place to live and work than even places like Denver, um, but, but certainly places like Los Angeles or San Diego. Um, the use of universities and all those things that, that your professionals would, would kind of you know, spew and all the things that, that folks like Chris Camacho do on a daily basis uh, are also important. But what, what I've seen here over the last 10 years is a massive influx in tech capital, tech, tech people capital or human capital. And what a lot of these young folks are saying when they're getting out of their you know, master's and CIS from, you know, you, I mean, you name it, but I've met a, a bunch of people from um, tech stand up, got out of their master's degree. And they had a job offer to go to Palo Alto and a job offer to come to Phoenix. And in Phoenix, they were able to buy a really nice condo in central Phoenix and have a car and play golf and do all of these other things that they enjoy because they personally benefit from it from a, a you know, a social emotional standpoint. And the, the price point of what they were going to be paid, the difference in what they were going to be paid to go to Palo Alto would have meant that they'd be like sharing an apartment 
Um, no way they were going to be able to afford a car. Uh, and their their lifestyle would have been much worse. So you, you've got this. So now that someone's moved here and they've taken their first job, well, maybe that company doesn't make it or maybe they're not like super happy with the management or the company itself or whatever. Well, they're already here. They've put down roots and they're not just going to jump shit. So I think that for your your small kind of techie startups, you've got a population here that wasn't here 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, to draw from uh, that that through recruiters and, and networking you can access. And then, um, you know, frankly, it's sunny here, you know, 300 and some odd days a year. Uh, and the weather is great. And the other thing I've seen over the last eight or 10 years is a lot of business owners who are maybe just starting a family and running a business in Minnesota or in Chicago or even in places like Kansas City, where the you know maybe the cost of living in Kansas City is comparable to Phoenix, Arizona, but there's no way you're going to beat the weather um, and all of the other kind of dynamics that that we as a, as a state kind of bring to the table. Uh, so I've seen a lot of folks move their businesses here when their children are young or when they're starting their family. Um, just to, you know, enjoy better parts of, of, you know, how they run their life. A lot of compelling reasons, a lot of compelling reasons. So we'd love to hear about some of the most common problems that, that, that you're running into and that you are helping companies solve. So it's a good question, George. Um, I think... You know, I, I think probably one of the hardest things for, you know, for, and, and I'll, I'll classify it as like our aging population of business owners, which is, say, 60 and older, is, is, is two things. One is that they've been calling all the shots and running this business for probably 20 plus years. Uh, and the business in itself becomes like a family member to them. And in some cases, these people care more about their business than they do their actual children. Um, I think that that presents a lot of kind of social emotional stress around the thought of not being in control and not uh, the, the thought of not running this business uh, in the future. But the, the more the mortality uh, that they're experiencing in their own personal life, they may not be running marathons anymore, or um, they might not, may not, you know, they, they realize that they can't work 60 hours a week anymore and they want to enjoy retirement. And, and that's just, that's like a difficult mental thought process to get into. And I think as a, as it pertains to it being a problem, what happens is a lot of those business owners just say, well, you know, there's nothing to do. I'm just going to like make that make, make me transitioning out of this role of me selling my business last on the priority list. And then something happens in their life that, that was unexpected or in their business that was unexpected. Maybe they lose a couple of key employees or they lose a key account and all of a sudden they're kind of stuck and, and there aren't uh, a, a plethora of opportunities, you know, for them to take advantage of to, 
to sell their business or, or transition or move on. Um, I think that one, another aspect that plays into that is the fact that 40 or 50 years ago, if you owned a small business in Phoenix, Arizona, you were grooming a family member, maybe, maybe not necessarily a son or daughter, but a nephew, a niece, or a son or daughter-in-law to run your business. And you see a lot of, you know, companies marketed here that are, are third generation businesses that, that fit that. Well, today that doesn't really happen because there's so much availability of the, the, the global economy has gotten so small and with access to different trade programs and universities, kids that grew up and their dad was, or, or, or mom ran a, you know, a, a equipment rental business. They're like, I don't want to get into equipment rental. I don't want to own a, bookbinding business. I want to go get into this other field that I have access to. Um, so a lot of your smaller businesses, it's not a linear transition path, which then kind of just exacerbates the whole thought process around transitioning or selling. And is it is money more important than, you know, the, the continuity of the business and the people in the business and all those, you know, kind of dynamics that I help people think through. I appreciate that. And as you're talking, it, it it strikes me that there's always this this classic behavior gap, right, between what I intellectually know and understand, but then what I actually do. Uh, how 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 does emotion play into this? Um, I I think I think emotion is huge. Uh, and and I. What I do, you know, I tell people all the time, it's much more, you know, therapy than it is high finance. Um, and, and that, you know, that, that kind of emotional piece to transitioning out of day to day. And, and what I do is not necessarily like, I'm not a business broker. I don't put a for sale sign in front of, you know, a business, right? I just have to sit with the business owner and say, okay, what are you doing? What do you want to see happen? Is the, you know, personal net worth you have tied up in this business important for your ultimate retirement plan? You know, so I've got to kind of engage with their money manager in, in, in many cases. Um, have you evaluated all of the, the other kind of pieces to your personal financial situation? I mean, the first day you, you train to become a, a, you know, what, what used to be a stockbroker, an asset manager, whatever, a, a financial advisor. Um, you know, the first thing you learn about small business owners is 90% of their net worth is usually tied up in that business, whether it's the real estate or the operating company. Because, you know, if you're an engineer at Intel, you realize that, yes, you get a little bit of stock in the company as some, you know, bonus or stock option program that you buy. But really, you got to start shoveling money in, away in your 401k and saving up in other places because you don't own that business. You are a cog in the wheel. But when you're an entrepreneur, you're putting a lot of your excess capital every year back into people, into equipment, and into growing your business. And then you get to the end of the day, and you're kind of just like you're, I mean, pregnant's the wrong term, but like you're stuck. Um, so, you, you know, it, advising the people through it, but if every business owner could take a, and I think this is where you get the, um, I just go off on a, a very short little tangent here, but 
where you have groups like Vistage and YPO and and um, kind of your your cohort groups of business owners that talk about you know about these issues. And I think that when you get kind of cohort feedback on where you're at from people who are dealing with the same you know situations, whether you're trying to grow your business as a startup or you're trying to exit your business, you know I it, that helps a lot of these business owners as opposed to some external advisor who's paid to come in and, and, and consult and kind of help you pick the right choice. Um, but they really, really struggle with it. If they could all make decisions um, with emotion not involved, their lives would be a lot easier. But, you know, if we could all, you know, make decisions about our, our um you know, marriages or, or girlfriend and boyfriend relationships without emotion involved, those relationships would be a lot more functional as well. So it is what it is. A lot more functional. Maybe not as much fun, but certainly a lot more functional. It, I, how, how often, I have to imagine that, that, I think I'm kind of asking the same question again, but what are some of these blind spots? Is it just, is it a function of, you know what, I know this is important, but you know, it, it's not going to be top of mind for me and I'll just take care of it when it's time to happen. And, 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 and how foolish is that? Yeah, it, it's, you know, I, I do this in my own personal life. Like there are things that around my house that I know I have to fix or do or whatever, but the, and I, and I think that, that there's also a function of, of the education. I mean, one of the main things I do, whether it's through local first or um, in just, you know, general networking communication with advisors to businesses, whether they're CPAs or attorneys or, or, you know, financial advisors, et cetera, is it's making the process less scary um, is, is hugely helpful. If, if the, the business owner and their advisor really understand all the moving parts of transitioning out of, of the ownership of their business or the day-to-day, and, and they can grasp all those things in, in, in a, a broad fashion, it, it takes the fear of taking that next step out of the equation. You know, why do I not do certain things in my own personal life? Well, it's because I've never done it before. Um, and, and, the, the business owners, one of the, the gentlemen sitting on our panel um, on, on Wednesday uh, is a guy named Jay Donkersluth. And Jay uh, moved here in Iowa or, or from Iowa in like 1975 uh, and you know, had a high school education and but was trained and had been through an apprenticeship as a machinist. So he got a job. After 10 years, he ended up buying the business from the owner. And in 1999, he sold that business to Triumph. And it's, it's actually like the facility still right here in, out, off of uh, Broadway and, and Roosevelt and Tempe. And since then, he has started with his own capital um, three other businesses, you know, two of them were in, in, uh, in building materials, but he started another aerospace machining business. And he's already exited one of them. He's about to exit the other two probably in the next two or three years at his discretion. But because he's been through the process, he knows where all the pain points are. He knows how to deal with the stress of it. And he knows what the end game looks like. And for a lot to, to, to get back to your question, really, 
a business owner who has never sold a business, it's so foreign and, and scary to them that it, they basically just refuse to address it in a meaningful way. Um, and, and I don't think that they always are, are realize some of the repercussions that can come from that of lost, you know, value in, in the enterprise of the business. If you're not taking steps well before your um, expiry date, whether that's as, a, as an employee or, or as a, a human being, um, to, to insulate your operating company from you being such an important cog in the wheel. But it, it really is just that, that fear factor of not knowing what the scary points are uh, and just electing not to address them. Alex, um, I'm glad that you talked a lot about this. And you talked about, um, you touched on it briefly, but I would love your thoughts on, especially as a member of Gen Next and uh, kind of the work that I'm doing in this same presentation that we're, the same conference that we're both joining is, tell me a little bit about business owners and how they should in, um, involve themselves politically and socially. So as a business owner, how do you feel like uh, being engaged in the political dialogue and social dialogue has helped or where do you think people should get involved? So I guess top line, where do you think business owners should be engaged around social contracts and social um, issues and also around politics? So that, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, and I think, I think that, that business owners and I'm trying to just like synthesize this down just into my little like silos. It's a very loaded question, right? But um, I don't think enough business owners, especially in the variety that I'm talking about, which are business owners that are kind of in the take five to $20 million revenue size business. You know, those are the folks I, I chat with all the time. I, I think that they get a little bit too binary on thinking about just the things that influence their day-to-day -day and their ability to operate their business and then go home and enjoy their other, the other parts of their life. Whereas, you know, being engaged, whether, you know, socially, politically, whatever your kind of personal preferences are or personal preferences, believe, you know, beliefs, system or structure, even if you manufacture widgets in, a, in, a, in an industry that doesn't touch, doesn't have a lot of external, I guess, influence, whether you want to think about like geopolitical things or, or macro US economy, that doesn't mean that it doesn't impact you um, because it, it, it certainly does. You're just not paying attention to it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that business owners get a little bit too focused on their backyard and their particular business um, and having a more kind of like a, a, a broader view of all of the external things that influence you. And that could come down to your employees and the education of their children and, you know, local policy decisions from that standpoint, I think is it may not show up on the income statement, but 
it's something that can benefit all business owners from from understanding the things that really have the potential to impact them. Got it. So is it ever too early to start thinking about exiting a business? You know, it, it's funny. I, I had a guy um, tell me about six months ago, and he, he falls into that category of a guy who had already sold a business um, and had a really, like, miserable experience uh, in selling that business. And there's a lot of different reasons for that, uh, that that we don't need to get into. But when he started the second business, he started it day one with audited financials and with the view that his business is always for sale um, and going the extra mile to have um, business plans put together and forecast and, um, and everything that you, you imagine huge companies to have by way of infrastructure that mom and pop organizations don't necessarily put a lot of resources behind. Um, and, and, and that's exactly why, because he knew that these were systems and things that were really hard for him to put in place when he tried to sell his first business, but really easy to implement as he was growing his second business. So in that context, you can, you can never start too early. Even if you are in your early 50s and you see you have a vision towards, you know, 2035 and all of these things that you want to do to grow your business and, and a, a, a date that far out, you can never start too early. Um, now, how much heavy lifting goes into that today versus five years from now versus 10 years from now is, is going to purely fall on each business and each industry and the dynamics around that business. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't start thinking in that direction now. And, and whether it's working with someone like myself, it's been you know, fantastic what I do every day. But also even just going to other, like I said earlier, go to other cohorts, other folks that you know that have sold businesses and say, you know, hey, what, what are the things that you wish you had done? What should I be focused on? And when your banker and your CPA advise you to say, hey, you might want to think about audited financials. I get that it might be an extra $20,000 a year you spend, but it's probably for good reason. Um, and, and it's something that, that, you know, that folks just, just don't do because they're, they're busy, you know, running their own business. Um, but that doesn't even take into account the unknown of you getting hit by a bus tomorrow uh, or, having some, you know, structural shift in your industry or your business that all of a sudden makes you a very attractive acquisition for a strategic um, investor or uh, company that needs a presence in your space, in your geography, whatever those dynamics are. If you're not ready, you're costing yourself the potential of hundreds of thousands or, or even into the millions of dollars um, that they don't have to pay because you haven't set your business up properly for an exit at any given you know, point in time. So many moving parts, <clears throat> so many things to be thinking about. So that being said, how, how do people engage with you? Um, you mean just from, from finding me and communicating with me? No, I, so it, somebody, somebody or, owns a business and they're, they're, they're listening. How do, uh, how, how, how do they raise their hand, 
walk us through the process of, of, of how folks actually work with you. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously folks can find me on LinkedIn. Um, they can email you guys and, and get all my contact information. Um, if they reach directly out to you, George, you can give them my cell phone number. Um, otherwise they can call, uh, the main number on my website. Uh, it's just the Um, and my email is aw at the walshcorp.com. I mean, generally speaking, um, folks don't necessarily know what they need when I first meet them. Um, I gave a, a presentation about tra business transition kind of dynamics um, that I, I believe you were at uh, in the fall. Uh, and I met with a couple of restaurateurs that um, are, they, they don't need a lot of heavy lifting uh, to get themselves ready. They don't really want to sell, but they kind of know they should be paying a little bit more attention to the moving parts and the value of their business from, uh, you know, hey, we're both six years old and they're trying to figure it out. Um, so I've met with them a couple of times and just giving them some things to think about. And um, we're going to potentially work on some kind of forecasting and modeling and help them over the next couple of years transition into um, a, a place where they're generating enough reporting that they can start to involve family members and the GMs that run their operations uh, as kind of an advisory group. And their total spend on on my involvement and and whether they end up getting evaluation might be, you know, five or six thousand dollars over the course of a year, uh, but it could potentially be worth, you know, an invaluable amount of of social emotional help to them. Um, so really, it's just you know understanding what folks are trying to do, and and I I consider myself more of a, you know, coordination of care practitioner uh, than, you know, a, a heart surgeon, if you will. I think that that's an excellent way to just think about it and to describe it. So I like it. Centauri, what else? No, the questions. I'm just excited for you, Alex, to kind of bring your expertise to uh, the summit and then also to continue this work. And um, thanks for being thanks for being on this podcast. No, absolutely. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, and I've listened to a bunch of your episodes over the months and just cool different topics and things and, and, you know, just the, the Arizona economy is so unique, but I think that what we all need and, and whether it's your local first folks or your first solars and um, life locks that were kind of created out of, you know, the hub here in, in, in Phoenix, um, and both of which are actually Tempe, but that's okay. Um, we're still a very young economy. Uh, we're still transitioning from being a real estate-based economy that was just, you know, booming and sprawling to having all of these unique uh, privately run businesses that employ a vast amount of our population and are going to have the potential for a unique experience of, of growth over the next uh, couple of business cycles, which, you know, depending on who you talk to, this business cycle might go on forever. Um, but we all need to kind of hunker down together and be good uh, uh, at sharing thoughts and visions and helping each other out uh, because we're still, you know, really in our infancy. 
I love it. I think that is the truth. And I'm such a proponent of, of strengthening the community, certainly the local community and, 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 and all that. So I appreciate the work. And I'm sorry, give us the website again, Alex. Uh, so the walshcorp.com uh, is my website. Uh, you can email me at aw at the walshcorp uh, or certainly find me on LinkedIn. If you're connected to George, you're indirectly connected to me. And um, I mean, listen, I thank you guys for your time. Thank you for all the effort that you put into this uh, awesome podcast. And uh, hopefully we'll see a lot of the folks that listen on Wednesday and Thursday. I love it. Thank you, Alex, and thanks as always for listening. Remember to keep questioning because the struggle is real. Before I go, quick announcement. I've been asked by so many people over the past couple of years about how do I start a podcast that I've developed and released a course that will teach you exactly how to do that step-by-step from figuring out the kind of show that you want to have to understanding how all the technology works behind it, and then how to get great guests and uh, keep the thing moving and how to grow it. So if you're interested in that, check it out. You can go to georgegrombacher.com forward slash podcast course, and you'll find it there. You can just go to the website. I'll also list that in the notes of the show.